So let's open our Bibles to Deuteronomy 7, the first 11 verses. And then after that, we will open to Matthew 18, verse 21 to 35. Deuteronomy 7, that's page 210, first 11 verses. This is the word of God. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But the Lord loves you, and because he would... Keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and judgments which I command you today to observe them. And we'll turn to Matthew 18. That's page 1134. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one of them was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold and that with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a, owed him a hundred denarii and laid his hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. 
So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but he threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if you do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. And we'll turn to our text on page 1354. Our text is Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. And so this is about putting off our old nature and putting on the old nature, new nature. And the first part of the chapter is about putting off your old nature. Uh, so putting aside anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. And the part we're going to read, the text, is about putting on the new nature. So our text is verse 12 to 17. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you also were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And maybe you could just keep your Bibles open because we will be going through this through our sermon. So the sermon I'm about to read is from the other Bradenhoff, Dr. Wes Bradenhoff. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus and little boys and girls too, if you ever happen to visit the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum, you'll see a plane going nowhere fast. Right in front of the museum is a CF-104 Starfighter. It's mounted on a pedestal and headed skyward. A few decades ago, this jet was flying at supersonic speeds over northern Alberta and West Germany. Now it's looking good but going nowhere. It's what we call a static display. Static means it's going nowhere. The Warplane Heritage Museum is unique because it not only includes static displays like the CF-104, but also aircraft that are maintained in flying condition. The most famous of these is the Avro Lancaster. It's not a fast plane. Cruising speed is only 210 miles per hour. Some time ago, 
the Lancaster made a trip to the UK, and on its way back, it left on a Tuesday morning and arrived back in Hamilton on Sunday. Now, they didn't fly that whole time, and there were weather delays and such things crossing the North Atlantic, but the Lancaster had never been known for its speed. 210 miles per hour is slow for a plane. Yet, compared to the Starfighter out front, it can still get from point A to point B. It still moves. Now, which of these do you suppose would be a good illustration of the life of a Christian? Does God want the life of a Christian to look like the Starfighter, that static display? Does he want our lives to look good but go nowhere? Or is God's purpose and plan for us to look like the Lancaster? Maybe not the prettiest, maybe not super fast, but at least it moves. Does God just want the status quo for us? Does he want us to reach a plateau and then stall there? Or is his will that we continue moving forward, even if it is at a glacial pace? What, am I, what I am speaking about here is sanctification. Remember, we define sanctification as the process of growing to reflect the image of Christ. So I'll say that again. The definition of sanctification is the process of growing to reflect the image of Christ. It's the process of growing in holiness according to God's will. I hope you picked up on the key word in the definition. It's growing. Growing is not a static thing. It involves movement and progress and development. Sanctification is God's will for Christians who have been bought by the blood of Christ. It is his plan that we should be moving forward. It's not an easy process, and it's not a quick process. It often looks messy. It's a whole lot more like the Lancaster than it is the Starfighter. Our passage this afternoon is about this, this always difficult, often slow, and sometimes messy process of sanctification. Looking back in Colossians 3, if you look at verse 2, we can read, Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And then we can see that worked out further in verses 5 to 11. And that's worked out mostly in negative terms. So union with Christ means putting, putting to death and putting away earthly things, specifically sins of sexual nature and sins about relational nature. nature. And now these verses that we are looking at in our text this afternoon work things out in a positive, in positive terms, in terms of virtues. Setting your mind on things above, focusing on Christ and his priorities, and that, move, that means moving in a certain direction. And so I preach to you God's word. The Holy Spirit teaches us what union with Christ looks like in terms of virtues to put on. We are taught how to live in unity and harmony, and we are taught how to live in thanksgiving, worship, and with Christ as Lord of all. So in verses 9 and 10, in Colossians 3, Paul uses clothing to illustrate sanctification. Christians are to take off the old nature like they take off their old dirty clothes, but then they are to put on a new nature united to Christ like we put on clean clothes. You see, taking off the old sinful nature is not, to meant to, not meant to leave you naked and cold. You need to be dressed with something. Here you need to be dressed with a new nature that's one with Christ. You take off the old sinful habits, desires, and attitudes and replace them with new ones that reflect Christ. 
That explains why in verse 12 of our text begins with, put on then. It's the same image being used. You're putting on Christ and his priorities. You're being closed with Christ in terms of your sanctification. As a consequence, when people look at you, they can see Christ and what's important to him. But look closely at how the Colossian believers are being addressed here. They are addressed as as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. These words are pregnant with meaning. The background could very well be what we read from Deuteronomy 7. The Israelites were the church of God in that age, and they were told they had been chosen by God to be his possessions. They were a people holy to the Lord, which means that they had been set apart by him and for him. They were not chosen because they were holy, but so that they would be holy. And Yahweh also says that he chose them from the basis of his love, but it is, but it is because the Lord loves you. All the elements from the Colossians are found there. It seems that Paul is drawing a line from the church in the Old Testament to the church in Colossae in the New Testament. And what he says about that church can also be said about us here today. We have been chosen by God, set apart by him and for him, and it's all because of God's love for us. Because, because this is who believers are by grace. This is how you live accordingly. You belong to God through Jesus Christ. And now, this is how you respond. This is how your life should look as a result of God's grace. That reminds us that God's grace is first and the gospel is first. What's here in chapter 3 is not a substitute or an alternative for the gospel. This is a response to the gospel of grace. If you have been chosen by, by God who loves, redeemed by a Savior who gave himself for you, this is how your life gets changed. Your life gets changed with the putting on of these virtues mentioned in verse 12. Let's look at each one of them briefly. Paul first mentions in verse 12, compassionate hearts. What he means is best illustrated by looking to Jesus. In Matthew 20, he encounters two blind men outside of Jericho. They are crying out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus approaches them and asks what they want and they asked the Lord for healing. In Matthew 20, verse 34, we read, And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Jesus had pity on these men. He had a heart of compassion. Those who are united in Christ want to have the same heart, a heart that breaks for the lost and broken. The next virtue mentioned is kindness. This is friendliness and help, helpfulness not only in terms of an attitude, but also in terms of action. Here we could think of what Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and, and the evil. Who portrayed this greater, greater measures than Jesus himself? He was kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. He came into the world to live and die for ungrateful and evil sinners. That's kindness. That's a friendliness that believers who are one with Christ want to see in their lives too. Humility is the next virtue Paul mentions in verse 12. Humility is defined biblically as not thinking of yourself more highly than you should. 
It's knowing who you are in relation to God. Here, you can't help but think of what Paul writes in Philippians about the Son of God emptying himself and taking on our humanity. The Son of God let go of this heavenly majesty and became one of us, one of us lowly creatures. In the ancient world of Colossians, humility was not considered a a virtue. Humility was considered negatively. It was a weakness. But the Christian faith revealed in Scripture says something different, especially as it points us to Christ. It's important for us today. In our world too, in our world too pride is, a, is the virtue and hum, humility is not. As we look to Christ, we want to live in union with him, strive to reflect him, also as we live in humility with one another before God. Then there is meekness. That means a gentle attitude and acts of kindness. The op- opposite of meekness would be rudeness or harshness. Closely related to it is the next virtue, patience. Patience is long-suffering, as our version of the Bible says. Being able to tolerate a lot. The opposite of patience would be the urge to lash out and to do it with no delay. Both these virtues, too, are an ample evidence in the life of our Lord Savior. As we look to the picture of him in the Gospels, we see gentleness and long-suffering. Look at how Jesus relates to his disciples. Look how slow they are. Look how slow his disciples are and how weak they are. They often stand in his way and slow him down. Yet, he was so patient and gentle with them. He didn't throw them to the curve, but lovingly tolerated them and gave them room to grow. Believers united to his Savior, their desire is for their lives to look like that too. We want to reflect Christ in our gentleness and long-suffering with, one, with other sinners. Did you notice something about all these virtues in verse 12? They all have to do with relationships. They all have to do with how human beings relate to one another. That's the focus here. How believers deal with the people around them. That carries on into verse 13. We're taught to bear with one another, to put up with one another, our quirks and little annoyances. There can be those types of little things that we should just let go of, but then there can also be bigger things, complaints. People may sometimes treat us harshly or unjustly. People may sin against us. What do we do then? The Holy Spirit says, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Well, that could be a whole sermon in itself. Let's just note a couple of things about forgiveness. Our forgiveness of one another is to be modeled on God's gracious forgiveness of us. Here you need to think about what we read from Matthew 18. Like the first servant in that parable, we have been forgiven an infinitely large debt. Through Christ, our huge debt to God's justice has been discharged. All our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. Scripture says in Micah 7, verse 19, that they are cast into the depths of the ocean. I read somewhere this past week that when God throws our sins into the, into the depths of the ocean, he then puts up a sign, no fishing allowed. That's a quote from Tor- Corey Ten Boom. These sins are out of the way, never to be brought up again. That's the forgiveness we've received and it shapes the forgiveness that we should prepare, that we should be prepared to offer anyone who sins against us. 
The second thing is about forgiveness is that it is a transaction. It takes place between two parties. It asks, one asks for forgiveness and the other grants forgiveness. Again, we must think of God. He doesn't grant forgiveness of sins to those who don't ask for it. He stands ready to forgive, but he doesn't actually forgive sins unless the sinner asks through Jesus Christ. That's the pattern for us too. When Paul writes about forgiving as we have been forgiven, he assumes this truth. When someone asks you to forgive, then you should forgive as you have been forgiven. You should let the offenses go, take it out of the, take it out of the way, promise never to bring it up again. You should, not let, you should let the offense go and not, not bring it up again. There must be a transaction. There must be a conversation. You can't truly forgive someone who doesn't ask for it. Yes, just like our gracious God, you can and must stand ready to forgive. United to Christ, you need to have a heart that wants to forgive. But in Scripture, real forgiveness is always a transaction between two parties. And that brings us to the third thing about forgiveness, which I'll just mention briefly. If there's a complaint, if there is some sin that has been committed against you and it's so weighty that you can't overlook it, then you have to pursue reconciliation. You must try and work it out. As believers, we can't just sit there and stew in our anger and bitterness. We have to go to the other person and try to get them to see their sin so they'll ask for forgiveness. And that's Matthew 18. The purpose of all these virtues here in verse 12 and 13 is to bring God's people together in unity and harmony. That's clear from verse 14 and 15. Unity and harmony is where this is all meant to lead. Believers are called to put on love, the self-sacrificial love exemplified by Jesus, the love that puts others first. Using the image of clothing again, it's as if all these other virtues have been put on and then love gets put on over top of them and holds them all together in some way. It brings them all to perfection. It makes them all what they're supposed to be. None of these virtues can be practiced without love. And last of all, Paul reminds us that we are called to live together in Christ in peace. That's the first part of verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, he says. You have peace through Christ, and that's something that not only has a vertical dimension, it also has a horizontal dimension. That peace not only speaks to your relationship with God, but it also is your relationship with other people, and specifically with other believers in the church. We are called together in one body, together members of Christ. There's supposed to be peace in the body, not warfare. The body should be united in harmony. This is something we are to strive for and to pray for. It's God's will that believers in the church relate to one another as Christ relates to them. That was true for the Colossians back in the day of Paul, and it's true for us today too. At the end of verse 15, there's a slight shift in the train of our thought in our text. Paul says, and be thankful. When he says this, he's now shifting the attention upward. Believers' relationships with one another are not totally out of the picture. What follows in verse 16 and 17 are still about living together in the church, but now it's about living together and relating together to God. When he says, be thankful, obviously that means be thankful to God. Living in thankfulness before God, who has graciously saved you. 
Then in verse 16, the Holy Spirit speaks of letting the word of Christ dwell richly in us. The word of Christ here means the word about Christ. This is a reference to the gospel, the good news of our salvation. It's God's will that this message have a rich and full presence in our lives. It's God's will that the gospel bless our lives and with its encouragement and guidance. But how is the word of Christ to dwell richly in us? First of all, we teach and admonish one another with wisdom of God's word. Teaching refers here to a positive type of instruction. Admonishing refers to pointing out where changes need to be made. Both take place with wisdom, and wisdom wisdom is found with the word of God. What you really need to notice here is that it says one another. These two words are critical. In the church, believers need to interact with one another over the word of God. That can take place in a few ways. It can take place informally as we get together for coffee or what have you. But there are, there are also more structured and formal opportunities to do this, like when we have group Bible studies together. Whatever the form it takes, the Holy Spirit is telling us here that this is something we need in our lives. We need one another. There can't be Lone Ranger Christians. Those who say, I don't need others. No, God's plan is for you to grow and to grow in a community, to grow with other believers, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That's God's will for you. But that's not the only way that the word of Christ dwells richly in us. There's also singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Singing together is also a way to have the word of Christ have a rich presence in our lives together as believers. When Paul speaks this way in verse 16, we need to be careful. The context here is not exclusively about a worship service. Our life together in the body certainly includes public worship, but it's far more than that. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae as they live together all the time, not just on Sundays. There's nothing to suggest that Paul has in mind only what takes place in public worship. Our entire life together as Christian brothers and sisters is to be filled with singing, with thankfulness in our hearts to God. God wants us to be a singing people. What are believers going to be singing? Verse 16 says, Psalms, hymns, and songs. Many interpreters view these, these terms as referring to three different types of compositions. I'm not convinced. In fact, for the longest time, many Reformed commentators held a different position. If you can read Dutch, you might check the notes from the old Staten Bible on this. The older interpretation noticed that the Greek words for psalms, hymns, and songs appeared on the titles of the psalms in the Greek translations of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. So one psalm might have a title which says it's a psalm, for instance, Psalm 3. Another psalm has a title which says it's a hymn, for example, Psalm 55. And another psalm, for instance, Psalm 91, has a title which says it's a song. So with this understanding, when Paul speaks of psalms and hymns and songs, he's referring to the Psalter, to God's covenant songbook. Singing the Psalter is a powerful way to have the word of Christ dwell in you richly. But someone might say, but what about the word spiritual? It's true that our translations connect the word 
connect that word with songs, spiritual songs. However, grammatically speaking, that word can be taken as qualifying all three terms, spiritual psalms, spiritual hymns, and spiritual songs. That actually makes more sense because the Psalter contains songs that have their origins with the Holy Spirit. They are all inspired songs. They are songs from the Spirit that all point us to Christ. So when we sing them, the word of Christ dwells in us richly. Does this mean we can only sing psalms? No, that would be saying more than what the text says. What the text is saying is that we should never ignore the psalms. Singing these songs together is a very rich way for us to let, for us to let the word of Christ dwell in us. We can and should do that in public worship, but also elsewhere, in our homes, at Bible studies, when we have meetings, whenever and wherever. We can and should worshipfully praise God and thank Him for the Psalms anywhere. Our text concludes with a blanket call for believers in verse 17. We are to do everything, whether it's with our words or our actions, we're to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, we are to acknowledge Christ as Lord in all we do. The thought here is essentially the same as we find in Proverbs 3, verse 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. If, if, we, are re, if we are united to Christ, then he is the head. We are his members. We follow his lead in everything. And everything here means everything when it comes to our finances, our health, our entertainment, our education, our recreation. All of it is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. As redeemed believers, the word calls us to acknowledge that and live accordingly. We always follow where he brings us with his word. And like Christ did in his life on earth, we live thankfully. We always have an attitude of gratitude. Giving credit, to, giving credit where credit is due for every blessing that comes from above. In our catechism, we connect sanctification with thankfulness, and that's done there because that's what Scripture does. Living a Christian life is a matter of gratitude to God for the gifts he bestowed on us. Loved ones, nothing in our text is easy. None of this comes naturally to me, and I suspect it doesn't come naturally to you either. All of this is only possible when we have the Holy Spirit of Christ shaping our hearts and lives. You see, he not only teaches us these things, but he's also the one who makes these things a reality. You can strive all you want in your own power, but you'll never make progress. You'll never get anywhere until you depend on his power. Brothers and sisters, really everything begins, everything begins with prayer. We need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to bring us into conformity with Christ our head. And as we do that, we can be confident that, that there will be changes in our life. They will come slowly, but they will come surely. We trust, we trust in God not only for our justification, but also for our sanctification. And he who is faithful will do it. Our, rede our Redeemer is faithful and true. Amen.